As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm uh, Tim Wyatt. Sorry, just got distracted by uh, something popping up on my screen. I'll start again. Hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, as always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad, John White. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. And we are doing a quick fire episode today. We're going to rattle through a few interesting news stories that we've been which we spotted and think are interesting. Um, and we want to start with uh, what's been a lot of conversation debate over, um, which is the new uh, uh, anti-obesity drug, uh, Wagovi, or semaglutide as it's also known uh which has been made available here in the uk for the first time as part of the nhs just a few months ago um you you'll probably have heard of this it's it was kind of became a kind of sensation in in the states um about maybe nine months a year ago uh it's it's an injection that you can take uh and it kind of uh, limits your appetite and so um is one of the first kind of of a new breed of drugs that have been shown to to help people lose weight and there was such crazy demand for it in the states that it was kind of like gold dust and really hard to get hold of uh, and there's still uh the the company that makes it said it's still uh struggling to uh just scale up uh, to meet the demand but it is now officially available on the nhs um for the first time and i guess it raises interesting questions it's not simply a kind of medical treatment because how we think about obesity and uh, people being overweight is often kind of seen through the prism of it being a moral question as well as simply a medical question, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly complex uh, medical physiological phenomenon. Um, what has recently been, relatively recently been worked out is some of the underlying endocrine mm. factors. Um, so it was it would be known for a long time that there must be chemical signals which tell you when you just don't want to eat anymore, when you feel you're just full and the the idea of any more food is just, no, stop, I don't want any more. Um, and uh, it, it's recently been worked out that something called glucagon-like peptide uh, is a, uh, a small molecule which which circulates and which basically tells the brain uh, that you don't want to eat anymore. Hmm. Uh, and um the uh the the way that these new drugs then 
work is that is that they effectively go on the same receptors and so they're telling the brain that you you don't want to eat that you you've had enough that you feel full and uh and it it stimulated a whole lot of uh commercial effort right by drug companies to try to find um ways of using this new endocrine knowledge um so i i i think there's it's potentially a very powerful medication but you we've got to sort of step back a bit and say why are we seeing this extraordinary obesity epidemic Mm. um and the the statistics are very very striking you know that the rates of obesity have been rocketing up over a relatively short time. I mean, we're only talking 20, 30 years, really, um, where rates of obesity have absolutely rocketed. And, of course, that's the problem with the self-control hypothesis, isn't it? Are we Mm. really suggesting that, you know, up until 30 years ago, the human race had fantastic self-control when it came to food? And then mm. we just completely lost it. And now, you know, the human race has fallen off some kind of moral moral landslide. You know? Yeah. It, it really doesn't make sense. It doesn't. So I, go on. I was going to say, you know, there's kind of almost two stories people tell about this. And there's the one story, which is, you know, there's no secret here. We know exactly why people get obese. It's because they eat too many calories and they don't do enough exercise. Uh, and therefore, like, there's no trick. It's just, you know, there's no, there's no magic bullet. There's not a, it's not a condition to be treated. It's just, you know, if you stick to good advice on diet and exercise, you will lose weight. But then you say the other side of the story is, well, hang on. If it's that straightforward, why are larger and larger numbers of people all of a sudden finding it impossible while other people don't have any trouble staying thin? And have never, despite, you know, eating a, a visibly unhealthy diet and, and not doing any exercise, have, have always been effortlessly skinny. And it kind of, and that's the, the what I think a lot of people who have struggled with obesity feel in their bones, but haven't necessarily had the evidence to prove is that it's harder for me than it is for some other people. And yet they're constantly, the message that shoved down their throat is, well, you are a moral failure because you haven't been able to do what all of us are doing without too much trouble. And so, and so some, I've read some interesting people saying, look, this is a good news. This is an unalloyed good news story. Some people, for whatever reason, find it really hard to maintain their, their weight, a healthy weight. This is a, a drug with not very many side effects. Um, why on earth wouldn't we use it to help people get back to a healthy thing? It's only our kind of Puritan idea that like nothing good for you can come without consequence, you know, that, that makes us shy away from this. Do, do you think that's a fair analysis? Well, you can see you can see the attraction of it, and in a way, it fits totally with the kind of technological fix mm. mentality, doesn't it? You know, whatever the problem is, there's a technological fix, and so we just need to work out what the mechanisms are, mm. uh, find a, a a medication or a surgical treatment or whatever it is, and then apply the fix, and then everyone's happy. And it's you know, and it 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 fits very neatly into that uh, zeitgeist. That, uh, you know, this is this is the idea of the the techno 
the techno masters. Um, but I think you've got to stand back and ask some deeper questions before. I mean, undoubtedly, there is a genetic component. And I think the genetics of this has been worked out uh, to some extent. Uh, and again, it's all to do with where your receptors are set and and the point at which you decide that you feel full. And the people who are always skinny are the people who find that their receptors, you know, they, they feel full quite early on. They just don't, they just, the idea of carrying and eating is disgusting. They just can't face it. So they just stop. Whereas the people who tend to put on weight are the people who feel, yeah, I could always have another one, another potato. Another, I still, I don't feel really full. Um, interestingly, of course. Guilty as charged. <laughs> and me. Uh, interestingly, you can see that um, from an evolutionary perspective, the people who always run thin uh, are very vulnerable when starvation hits. If there, for whatever reason, if there is a period of famine, mm. the people who are all who are always skinny uh, tend to die first because they run out of calories. The people who there's an evolutionary reason, therefore, for those who manage to store calories well and who walk around with excess calories, they cope with starvation very much better. And therefore, evolutionarily, they will tend to survive and pass on their genes to the next generation. You know, which makes perfect sense when you think, you know, when we're hunter gatherers in the African savannah, you know, you're you're scratching out a living on some minimal calories, you know, nine days in 10. And then suddenly someone in the tribe manages to score a woolly mammoth. And you can't store this food. It's going to rot in a few days' time, right? And so actually the right, the sensible evolutionary thing to do is to gorge yourself on as much as you can possibly stomach before you throw up <laughs> and so that, you know, you can stretch this meal out because you don't, you don't know how long it's going to be till you next manage to bring down a gazelle or whatever. And otherwise you're surviving on roots and, and, and grubs and things. And actually that's yeah, actually not- quite a, a useful mechanism, except in, a, in an era of kind of industrialized agriculture when we have plenty the idea that you can gorge yourself until you vomit actually when there is not going to be a lean time coming anytime soon it's actually profoundly unhealthy that's right and there is a narrative that people moving from a part of the of the planet often the poor south where uh, there's been a deficiency of food supplies and then moving to a calorie rich society uh, they are the ones who are particularly at risk of developing morbid obesity uh, because all the thin ones died out in their previous era. The only ones who survived were the ones who, whose receptors were set at, at a level mm. to be able to store calories. But once they then arrive in the rich north and have access to limitless calories, uh, they find they, they, they develop significant obesity. So there is undoubtedly a genetic element but the genetic element doesn't explain this takeoff in levels of obesity over the last 30 years. And therefore, you've got to look for some other explanation. And I, I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that, it, that it's to do with the food producers, the, mm-hmm. the, that exactly you know what it is is still some debate. But I, I think it's pretty clear that ultra-processed modern foods high sugar high soul high fat but they've often got lots of additives as well which are all designed to overcome the resistance to eating they 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 are it's basically addictive it Mm. makes food so attractive and so addictive 
that you just want to it overwhelms the um the mechanisms to say stop mm. enough is enough and and so this is happening wherever because of course this is capitalism what mm. the food manufacturers discovering is if you put these additives into your foods if you make and if you promote these addictive foods lo and behold shareholder value rockets mm. we make lots of profits capitalism is driving food manufacturers to make their foods addictive and attractive mm. um and then capitalism is driving the pharmaceutical companies to create highly expensive obesity drugs to overcome the effects of capitalist mm. food manufacturers you think hang on a minute <laughs> isn't there a better Something, way isn't there a better way and i guess this reminds me of the discussion that is sometimes had about the comparable explosion in rates of things like depression and anxiety and in many parts of the world particularly in the united states the kind of enormous rise in numbers of people who are living on antidepressants and, and medication and this idea that on one level you're like well why wouldn't we you know if an ssri makes you feel happier like what is the downside but then you're saying well hang on if quarter of our population requires to needs to be medicated to be able to live in a happy way something's gone wrong here and maybe we need to wind the clock back and look at the root causes of that rather than just dishing out these magic technological fix and as you say perhaps it's the same story with with food and obesity and and Wigovi is that rather than just saying well let's put a whole bunch of people on Wigovi um why do we wind the clock back and say well why are people so obese like they never have been before and if we can address that then we won't need to medicate people at all yes that's right and and there's also a a, a clear association with socioeconomic deprivation isn't it and again it's a paradox because of course if you go to many areas of the world where resources are very scarce the poor people are thin and the and yeah. the wealthy people are are a beast because yeah. they're the only ones who can have access to serious amounts of food and of what we're finding in the rich countries is exactly the reverse that the 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 areas of socioeconomic deprivation are the are the often the areas where the obesity problem is greatest and you know i i see it at first hand we live in an area of north london and what we see is as as the schools come out and a lot of people in our area come from fairly deprived backgrounds as the schools come out the kids make a a dash for the chip shop and they're all eating, you know, this ultra-processed uh, chicken wings and chips. Mm. Um, and it's like they're, they're just tapped into already the addictive the yeah. addictive mechanisms. It's big business. You know, it's expensive. You know, these, these are families that don't have a lot of money and it's all going on chicken and chips. Yeah. And I guess this taps into another broader ethical question about Wegovi and other kind of similar brand of weight loss drugs is that, you know, in the States, there was this kind of talk about it being a kind of, um, you know, a, a social class thing, because if you were rich and fat, you'd get the drug and you'd lose weight. But if you were poor and fat, you would be told the traditional method of go on a diet and do some more exercise and you'd stay fat. And so, you know, where we was this the kind of the glimpse of a future society where that kind of disparity between rich and poor is even more locked in because even those few rich people with all the benefits of their of their superior diet and education who do get fat, they can just wish it away with the drug. Um, I guess the difference between the UK is that obviously the NHS is open to all, 
but it's interesting that the way they're kind of only really dipping their toe in because the the guidelines say you can only you can only be prescribed with govi if you have a bmi of over 35 which is you know so 25 or more is overweight 30 or more is obese so 35 means you're quite obese um so this is only really at first going to be offered for people who are already probably getting medical assistance because they are severely obese and it's not going to be you know your your slightly podgy uh you know dad gone to seed no thank you very much for that uh <laughs> i wasn't talking about you i was talking about you generic dads who may oh, be generic. possibly oh, yeah. going to seed yeah, in their yeah, middle yeah, age yeah he, he not did. A, he said not a finely de- toned specimen like yourself father <laughs> he said desperately drawing back her damage already done son but um <laughs> just Positively, what I would say, though, is that there is absolutely no doubt that obesity is creating massive health problems in the UK, not just mm. in the USA. And, um, and, and you really see it in the NHS, uh, the number of heavily obese patients with all the many, many complications they have. And, you know, like I happen to know about childbirth and, and all the issues related to that and morbid obesity amongst pregnant women is much more common than it used to be and it's associated with a massive increase in lots and lots of complications so whatever the the rights and wrongs of it are i think on a on a sort of harm minimization Mm. approach uh using these drugs and bariatric surgery which is another of the very effective means of, of dealing with this uh actually uh, it's good for patients and and on an economic level it actually saves money i mean the obesity costs the nhs so many billions mm-hmm. of pounds a year that spending some money on expensive drugs if it really does is going to uh significantly reduce uh rates of obesity then ultimately this is this is good this is good health and you know that is that case is made absolutely explicit fascinatingly in the the press release from the government announcing that Wigovi was now available in NHS, you know, in the name of the Prime Minister, not the Minister of Health, the Prime Minister is taking credit for this. He says this, obesity puts huge pressure on NHS. Using the latest drug to support people to lose weight will be a game changer by helping to tackle dangerous obesity-related health conditions such as high blood pressure, diabetes and cancer, reducing pressure on hospitals, supporting people to live healthier and longer lives and helping to deliver on my priority to cut NHS waiting lists. So he's very directly making the case that this is not just about poor individuals who are struggling with being fat, but he's saying, as you're saying, this is actually a public health issue. And in a public health system, this is this is an intervention that is literally going to save us money and free up hospital beds. And that's why we should we should push ahead with it. And I think that's absolutely right. But it surely we must do something about the food manufacturers. At the moment, you know, the food manufacturers have enormous lobbying power. Mm. And uh, they, uh, the government is very loath to uh, to limit their activities, um, and politically, it's not at all an attractive route. And yet, it makes absolutely no sense to continue to allow them to uh, produce and market foods which which are just fundamentally damaging. Um, and therefore, ultimately, there's going to have to be regulation. Mm. Yeah. 
Well, we'll have to keep an eye on that as that as that unfolds. It's worth noting at the very end that the trial, which is behind all of this, found that it could help some people lose up to about 15% of their weight over two years. So it's not exactly kind of, you know, significant, but it's not life changing necessarily. And there's there remains some early signs that people struggle to keep the weight off in the longer term. So and this drug hasn't been around long enough to know necessarily how they will unfold over time. So I think this is a story we'll need to kind of keep an eye on over the longer term. Yeah, actually, that's a very important point that, that there have been real worries that what happens is, yes, you get this very significant weight loss over the two years you take it, you stop taking the drugs and immediately your weight rockets up again. And then so what do you do then carry on taking the drugs? And so then which you works just fine for the pharmaceutical company manufacturing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable Going Strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. All right, shall we move on to another one quickly? This was another story, another medical story, actually, um, from a month or so ago. Uh, The headline on the BBC News website is this. Scientists allow forbidden 28-day embryo experiments. Uh, Many top UK scientists are calling for the current 14-day limit on embryo research to be doubled to 28 days so they can study the unexplored secrets of early human development. Lifting the ban could yield major scientific breakthroughs for infertility, miscarriage and birth defects. And it appears there could be public support. So this is a story really about um, a research project that was funded by the government um, here in the UK, which asked people uh, kind of ethical and philosophical questions around about embryo research. Um, we've covered in, in previous episodes, haven't we, about how the rules in the UK have been for, for about 30 years or so that um, Scientists are allowed to develop human embryos in the lab up to 14 days old, and then they must be destroyed. And, and so and they're not allowed to do any further research on them. And so this was a, a some kind of research project to see, well, how do people feel about what about if we expand, expanded that limit? And scientists are under, understandably very keen on this idea. Yeah, so it, it, just to recap, basically, um, once the, the first IVF baby 
uh, happened in the UK in, in the ni- late 1970s, 1978. And at the time, there was really no regulation at all about human embryos or what could be done. And the government uh, formed a, a Warnock committee under Dame Warnock. And it was really a, a world's first attempt to regulate this, uh, th- this new kind of technology. And um, it was a committee of the great and the good. And they had various philosophers, scientists, religious leaders, and so on. And it, uh, Dame Warnock said it, be, it rapidly became apparent we were never going to agree about the fundamental philosophical status of the embryo. And, but everybody agreed there had to be some rules. There had to be some rules. And we agreed that the rules were arbitrary, but nonetheless, they had to be there. And the committee decided that they would allow embryos to be stored in laboratory and to develop only up to 14 days stage. And at 14 days, they put an absolute line in the sand and said uh, it would be a serious criminal offence to keep an embryo beyond 14 days. And the 14-day limit was was chosen, although it was largely arbitrary, the, the... the reason they said was that the the first formation of the central nervous system um, happened after 14 days. And therefore, um, we could be confident that there was nothing that could be like a nervous system or a brain that was present. Um, and interestingly, uh, that happened in 1984. So it's, it's nearly 40 years. 40 years old, yeah. And... Interestingly, that 14-day limit has basically been adopted across the world. The UK was the first to propose it, but everybody has basically accepted this 14-day limit um, and has held for 40 years. Um, But perhaps predictably, uh, the scientists were all saying, yes, but it's terribly interesting what happens between after 14 days... And it's it's a roadblock in in scientific progress. And think of all the good we could do if we could keep embryos alive beyond 14 days in the lab. And so there is definitely a scientific pressure to relate to relax the rules. But here I think is is something quite interesting about the way that the British political and scientific political world operates. And and that is that it it it, um, it operates largely behind closed doors. So, so what often seems to happen is is that scientists and politicians and media people and commercial interests get together behind closed doors and have sort of off the record discussions about what they would like. And. And then the question is, now, how do we sell this? We all agree that having a liberal regime to allow research on embryos is good for everybody. It's good for the scientists because they get their Nobel prizes. It's good for the commercial people because they can have wonderful new treatments as a result. Uh, It's good for UK PLC because we become a world centre for research and therefore scientists from around the world will come here and set up labs and do stuff. So how do we sell it? Well, this is where the media people come in. So so it's often broadsheet journalists and people who work for the BBC and so on who 
who find a way of just presenting this research in a way which is not appealing. And uh, often what they then do is they, I think in this particular case, they used a, um, they've used some kind of group of uh, the public, haven't they? They, they um, Yeah, 70 people, uh, kind of like a, I guess a, a big a focus system. group. Yes. Um, and they a kind of mixture of people and they ask them, you know, how would you feel about various things? It's it's the group behind it is called the Human Developmental Biology Initiative. And, and they say it's, they're not trying to lobby to remove the 14 day limit. They're trying to understand how the public would feel if the 14 day limit was removed. And, and, and do they have any concerns about the regulation of research involving human embryos? But of course, you can imagine taking 70 people off the street and saying, now, what do you feel about embryo research? Now, what would you feel? Uh, uh, so therefore, it all depends how I present how it to you, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. And who's going to present it to you? Well, we are the scientists. We're going to explain to you. Mm. And we're going to explain what the embryo actually is. And, and so, so forgive me if I sound slightly jaundiced, but I, I feel that there's often a, a subtle but very powerful agenda here. Because surprise, surprise, I think you'll find that the 70 people will say, well, we think there's no reason not to extend it from 14 days to 28 days. And then eventually the politicians can can propose it, you know, and, a, and a, either a private member's bill comes in Parliament and then it's discussed. They say, well, of course, you know, we've, we've softened the ground. And it's often also you have it with, with um, documentaries, science documentaries, which show the wonderful things that could be done if we made the law more liberal. Um, and often it, it's presented as, you know, opportunities for scientific research. So, for instance, spina bifida, Mm-hmm. The argument goes, well, uh, this is spina bifida happens in those first few weeks. And if we were able to keep embryos alive long enough, maybe we could understand what causes spina bifida and think of all the good we could do then. So so it's it's mm-hmm. presented in a in a sort of positive way. I mean, have you seen uh, this quote, interestingly, in the in the article from Peter Rugg Gunn, who is the scientific lead for this human developmental biology initiative and he says we know very little after two weeks two to five weeks is a black box but he says the ivs success rate is one in four and often it fails after the second week of development we know very little about what contributes to that failure currently and so the clear kind of implication is if you let us extend the 14 day limit we can give all those couples desperate for their own children a much more successful ivf rate you know, it's a kind of, it's almost an exchange he's offering, isn't it, to the to the culture at large. You know, you want more kids through IVF, take away this pesky limit, we'll do some research, and a byproduct of that will be that your IVF will be more likely to succeed. Yes, and of course, you know, they may be right. Uh, the, the question is, uh, how, what are the potential challenges and problems about allowing embryos to be grown beyond this 14-day limit? And uh, is it justified? Um, and, of course, then the question is, well, what about 28 days? Where did the 28 days come from? <laughs> is there anything magic about 28 days? What well, happens... something about the neural tube they mention that goes on to form the brain and spine. It closes at around four weeks. 
but there are many reasons to say, well, actually, if we could go to 35 days or <laughs> even 42, you know, and so, and so it goes on. So I, I think I, I personally feel deeply concerned about this. Um, but I can see that if, if you present it entirely in terms of risks and benefits, which is the classic scientific uh, sort of utilitarian approach, Let's just think about what are the risks? Okay, well, yeah, it's not very nice to be growing these little babies in test tubes and, and yes, it could be abused and so on. But what are the benefits? Just think about the, the positive, wonderful things that scientific research might do. Then surely these benefits outweigh the unpleasantness of keeping embryos alive for longer in the laboratory. And which is why I think that's rather simplistic cost-benefit analysis is too simple. The question is, do we want to be part of a society which is growing miniature human beings? So we can do experiments on So them. we can do experiments and, and work out how to help other human beings. Is this fundamentally the kind of society we want to belong to? Or is that kind of instrumentalization? So, you know, if, if I was to analyze this philosophically, I would say that this is taking one human being and using it as a product, as an instrument. Means in to order, an end. A means to an end. And it fundamentally, you know, in a previous episode last week, we were talking about the incarnation, the fact mm. that God treats humanity, human flesh, as something of immense value and reverence and dignity does this fit mm. with a redemptive understanding of what it means to be human and so from that perspective kind of arguments about 14 versus 28 days is slightly missing the point because philosophically morally there's not a huge distinction between the research that's already been going on for 40 years on nine day old 12 day old seven day old embryos and the research that they want to do on 18-day-old embryos. Like fundamentally, as you say, the question you have to ask first is, uh, do we want to be the people who are creating tiny human beings so that we can experiment on them in the lab, and whether they're 14 days old or 30 days old or 50 days old, um, is slightly secondary. Yeah, but but just because we're already doing that, that doesn't mean say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> no. We can do whatever we like. No. But this would definitely be extending the way we're experimenting on small human beings. And and the question is, is this justified? And, and, and my answer would be, there are lots of other ways of addressing issues of neural tube defects, of infertility and so on. It's not as though the only possible way we can have any scientific advance is by doing this research on early embryos and in fact i think arguably you could say that research on early, early embryos on early human embryos has not generated a vast amount of scientific breakthroughs i mean actually it's research on mouse embryos or on rat embryos or fruit fly embryos and so on that's where most of the breakthroughs in embryo in understanding embryogenesis and uh, new science has come and uh there has been some advantages, some things that have come from work on human embryos, but I would argue it not of the 
groundbreaking nature that would justify mm. uh, the ethical challenges of doing this kind of research. And just lastly, then, does that does your opinion extend also to another question that was asked in the same kind of consultation um, by the same group? They asked their 70 people off the street what they thought about developing synthetic embryos. So these are embryos that haven't been fused out of an egg and sperm and kind of traditional biological conception, but they're where, they, where scientists have learned how to take ordinary stem cells from somewhere else in the human body and kind of cultivate them and, and trick them into developing into an embryo. Um, this is a very new kind of research and the UK is, as I understand, we don't have the equivalent kind of settled regulatory framework for what to think about it and that people are currently trying to um, figure out what, what should the laws be. Yeah, that's right. So at the moment, the definition of an embryo is, is, is something that's created by a sperm and an egg. And as you say, it's possible to create these synthetic embryos the commonest thing that they're doing is that they they take a combination of different types of stem cells. So you take some stem cells that come from a nervous system, you take some stem cells that come from somewhere else, you you put them all together, and then you sort of create something which then starts to grow, uh, and which you can experiment on. And at the moment, it isn't covered by any kind of regulatory framework. Um, and again, it's difficult to know what to make of all this. Um, but I, again, I, I feel uneasy at, at, create, at if effectively creating something that is almost human, but isn't. Uh, mm. I'm reminded of uh, the theologian Oliver O'Donovan, who said, we have replaced the old crime of killing babies with the new crime of making beings that are ambiguously human. Hmm. And uh, you could argue that tragic as it is, when we destroy a human life, an early human life, at least we know what we're destroying. But when we create this being that we really don't know what it is, is it, is it human? Is it semi-human? Is it non-human? There's a, there's an, to be ambiguously human is, is something that's deeply troubling. And is there any clear sense about what the point of this would be? Or is this just curious scientists who have no kind of moral guardrails who are just saying, well, because we can do this, I would like to do this to see what happens? Or do they have a very clear sense? I started trying to fiddling around with stem cells because I'm convinced that I could use it to do this particular research project or treat this particular condition. Well, I, I think I think it's mainly blue skies research, but it's blue skies research in areas which are medically incredibly important. So we know that many, many uh, lethal and other abnormalities of, of the embryo and the early fetus, they happen at this stage. They happen very early on in the first few weeks. And therefore, the more we can understand about precisely how, what normal development happens, how the cells talk to one another, how they grow, how it goes wrong, the more likely we are to be able to understand how terrible fetal abnormalities occur and also possibly later disease as well. So it, like many, much basic biological research, it does have medical implications, but you can never say for certain what the consequence is going to be, how, how, whether it's going to 
lead to definable medical treatments or prevention of disease, we don't know. Uh, it may, it may not. Hmm. And just lastly, how do you defend this position that you've kind of expressed from the kind of claim that this is just kind of Christian obscurantism that, you know, that Christian's answer is always don't, always stop, always don't look behind the curtain, always don't explore, don't push the boundary. And and actually, this is a kind of anti-intellectual, anti-science approach that just says, I'd, ra- I'd be happy in my kind of pious ignorance rather than daring to to challenge and understand more about the complexities of the world. Well, you're right. That is the that is the criticism and you know someone like me would be described as a bioconservative i'm mm. i'm somebody who is uh wanting to conserve and preserve respect for humanity rather than really push push the boat out in terms of experimenting and and some would argue that people like me uh are a roadblock you know and have have constantly got in the way of uh, always throwing up objections Dan just let us get on with these petri dishes there's so many interesting things we could be doing I know but and my answer is these things are too important to be left to the scientists you know there's enough evidence of you know the mad scientist in the lab you know it goes back to Frankenstein and, and all the rest doesn't it but unfortunately history has repeatedly shown these are not just myths that that science is too important to be left to the scientists. It has to be open to a genuine democratic discussion and debate. And and in the end, is what kind of society do we want to build for the future? Um, and is, if there are other ways of dealing tackling with these medical problems which don't involve ethically dubious questionable reams wouldn't it be better to spend the big money and the focus on those um rather than the uk becoming the world leader in uh ethically dubious research at the beginning of life Hmm. yes well interesting um let's let's draw to a close there thanks um as always everyone for for listening and kind of going on this journey um if you if you've spotted some interesting news stories or kind of scientific developments you'd be interested to hear us respond to please do carry on sending those in you can reach us by emailing molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk um there's obviously lots more material on on medical ethics and and these bioethics issues on dad's website yeah you can find that john wyatt w-y-a-t-t dot com um otherwise uh we will speak to you next week well in fact actually we're going to go off on a little bit of a break over over christmas so we'll we'll keep the feed ticking over with some uh classic uh, episodes and Toby, you've got a new Substack. tell us tell us about, about <laughs> oh that. you're too kind <laughs> i actually did forget about that yes um i uh well i'm not recording this podcast i'm a i'm a freelance uh religion journalist mostly writing about church news and i have recently started a a Substack, which is a, a basically an email a newsletter and a blog rolled into one um so uh, if you subscribe to that you can receive every tuesday morning piping fresh takes and analysis and commentary on the latest church news interesting selection of links of things that i found my kind of analysis as a as a seasoned religion correspondent about what's really going on um, so if that sounds interesting to you please do um head over to 
T.S. Wyatt, so T-S-W-Y-A-T-T dot substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. So that's T.S. Wyatt dot substack dot com, where you can uh, sign up to uh, receive my my newsletter, which is called The Critical Friend. Thanks, Dad. Very generous of you to flag that one up. Um, as I was saying before, I was so rudely interrupted to promote my own my own work. Um, uh, we are actually going to be taking a bit of a break over the Christmas and New Year period, but we will keep the feed ticking over with some some classic episodes from from Molad time gone by. <laughs> so look out for. Those. I mean, really classics. I'm, I'm afraid that sounds a little uh, <laughs> Molad classics. Yeah, vintage, vintage Molad. Vintage, yeah, yeah. Legacy, I think. Legacy <laughs> Molad, yeah. Whatever, whatever adjective of choice comes to mind. Um, but we hope you all have a wonderful Christmas and New Year's, and we'll see you in 2024. Bye bye. Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.